Well, as we look to the Lord and his word, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, what that hymn we sang a couple of minutes says is so true. We have a Savior to show to the nations. And we want to be good showers of that Savior. We want our Savior to emulate from this church. We want him to be palpable to the lost. We want to be part of advancing his gospel to all nations. So Lord, use this word this morning to help us to aspire to be like that. Use it to sharpen us. Use it to awaken us to the the call of the kingdom. Lord, would you uh, use my words? I'm, I'm weak, I'm frail. Accompany what I say this morning by your spirit that it might change us. Be glorified in this word we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the church's mission is distilled in the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. But while our marching orders are clear, Christians often disagree on how the Great Commission is to be carried out, especially in today's world. How is the ancient gospel to advance in modern times. And there's a temptation to think that we need to do something new to reach contemporary people with the gospel. There's a temptation to make the church more hip, to appeal to the younger generations. There's the age-old temptation to water down the gospel. You know, just don't say anything about hell or repentance or slavery to sin. There's a temptation to win others to Christ by creating meaningful experiences, you know, music productions fit for a record label, wow-level programs, impressive facilities with all the modern gimmicks. Now, it's my conviction that while we do need to think strategically about the day and age in which we live, we actually don't need a new approach to advance the gospel today. I believe that the gospel has always advanced in the same pattern, from the earliest days of the church, even to this day. Moreover, I'm convinced that the book of Acts holds forth this pattern. Acts contains the playbook, if you will, for how the earliest Christians carried out the Great Commission. And it's more than just history. What the apostles and earliest believers did in Acts is meant to be instructive for us today. See, we we don't need to get cute to advance the gospel in 2022. We need only to look to the Holy Scriptures in Acts and let God instruct us about how to build his kingdom. So as my family and I head out from here, I want to share with you how the book of Acts has inspired me to consider church planting in a difficult place like Utah or New England. And I hope to encourage you this morning to catch that vision too. Now, I think you can distill the church's approach to spreading the gospel in Acts to two words, going and sending. And I want to unpack briefly how each of these ideas plays out in Acts. And let's start with going, and let's first consider where the gospel went in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Acts 14, and let's read together, starting in verse 19. Acts 14. Let's read, starting in verse 19. 
But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Here in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are in the province of Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey, and they're preaching in Gentile cities like Derbe and Lystra and Iconium. Now, back in chapter 1, Jesus commissioned his apostles to be his witnesses. And he said, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We read that as our New Testament reading this morning. And the storyline of Acts unfolds according to that pattern. So Jerusalem is where it started. You're probably familiar with Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 souls came to faith. That was at Jerusalem. And the early chapters of Acts are set in Jerusalem. But then, starting around Acts 8, with Stephen's martyrdom, the gospel spreads throughout Judea and Samaria, a bit further out from Jerusalem. And then in chapter 13 to the end of Acts, the emphasis is on the gospel's expansion to the ends of the earth. This is the part of Acts where we read about Paul's missionary endeavors, like here in Acts 14. So regarding where the gospel spread in Acts, it it went wherever Christians went. If you're ever interested, just read Acts and chart out first, whenever a Christian went somewhere, and second, what the result was. And you'll be amazed. I did this in preparation for the service. I have like three pages of notes. You'll be amazed that wherever a Christian went somewhere in Acts, the gospel went forward. There were various catalysts for why Christians went. You know, sometimes it was an arrest or persecutions or commands by an angel or being carried away by the Spirit or responding to the command of the Lord, receiving a request from disciples, being sent by the church, visions. But no matter the catalyst, souls were saved and the gospel made progress. We see an example of that right in verse 21 of chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas, they go to Derby, They preach the gospel there. And they make many disciples. See, the gospel's advance required Christians to go to new places. Even with Saul's conversion, we tend to think of the blinding light that he saw on the way to Damascus and the voice of Jesus speaking to him. But that's not actually when Saul was saved. He was actually blinded for three days at that point. It wasn't until a Christian, Ananias, laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight and receive the Holy Spirit. That something like scales fell from his eyes and he was baptized. See, even in Saul's conversion with that miraculous encounter, it took a Christian, it was necessary for a Christian to be there. No Christians, no gospel. So where did the gospel go? It went wherever believers went. And another question related to this idea of going is, how did the gospel go forth? It wasn't just through conversions, but also, and I would say primarily, through the formation of local churches. Let's just reread verse 23 in Acts 14. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, 
With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, Paul and Barnabas are backtracking through towns where they had already won many people to Christ. And on their way through, they appointed elders in every church. Isn't that kind of interesting that they did that? Why? See, the ultimate goal of their mission went beyond winning converts. It was winning converts in a local church setting. That was the objective. It wasn't just make new Christians. Yes, that was part of it. But it was ultimately to make new churches. And that's why the local church is so prominent in the book of Acts. Many times the word church is linked to a specific congregation. Like the church at Ephesus or the church at Antioch or the church at Jerusalem. And elders show up a lot in Acts as well. Like at the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15. And in Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Why? Because the early church made new congregations. Not just new Christians. See, the local church is the primary means by which the gospel goes forward. We tend to think of evangelism as an individual thing. And there's a lot of truth in that. But I would argue that evangelism is primarily a team activity. I think that body of Christ analogy for the church is so helpful. I mean, let's say I'm like a toenail in the body of Christ. And I share the gospel with my neighbor. Now, are they going to see Christ in me? Well, yeah, but they're just going to see the toenail, right? But what happens if I bring them to church? You know, maybe they'll bump into persona. And maybe persona's like a foot. So now they've got the toenail and the foot. And then maybe they take their kids to nursery. And the nursery workers are like hands. And then they hear Pastor Mark preach. And and Pastor Mark is like a big mouth. I mean, do you see what a, what a better representation of the gospel that is? When we all, as a team, engage the lost? The local church, it's, it's like a, a little outpost of gospel proclamation. It's through the witness of local churches in particular, not merely the witness of individual Christians, that the gospel advances to the ends of the earth. So where did the gospel go in Acts? It went wherever believers went. And how did it go forth? Not merely through individuals' conversions, but primarily through local churches. Acts shows us that the gospel's progress requires believers to go, not just in some general way, but to go to places where Christ is not known to form local churches. And this pattern of going is necessary today, just as it was in the first century. You know, a week from today, we're going to be driving to Washington County, Utah, which has about 200,000 people living in it. But according to the pastor at the church we're going to be at, there are only nine churches. He told me that's a generous count, but nine churches where somebody might hear the gospel on a Sunday. 200,000 people, only nine churches, or less than one church for every 20,000 people. See, how, how are people in Washington County, Utah, going to hear the gospel with those odds? How is the gospel going to go forward in a place like that? It's going to take Christians to go there. Not just in some general way, but to go there with the, the goal of starting churches. 
know, let's start one over here and maybe one up here and one down here, maybe one in the middle over here. And then all of a sudden, you've got these little outposts of gospel proclamation and the word of God can increase in a new area. Acts shows us that the gospel's progress requires going. But it also requires sending. If you read Acts carefully, you'll see that the gospel went forth under the oversight of local congregations who sent out ministers of the gospel. Why are Paul and Barnabas in Galatia in Acts 14? Now, were they just on vacation or something like that? No, it was because a church had actually sent them out. Turn back to Acts 13 for a second. Let's just read the first couple verses of Acts 13. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, the lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there, they sailed to Cyprus. Who sent Paul and Barnabas on their mission? Was it the church, or was it the Holy Spirit? Because in verse 3, it says that the church sent them after fasting and prayer. And then in verse 4, it says that they were sent by the Holy Spirit. And clearly, it's both. The Spirit, by means of the church at Antioch, sent Paul and Barnabas out. And we don't have time to walk through every example of churches sending out gospel workers in Acts, but the pattern is there throughout the book. Acts knows no Lone Ranger Christian ministers. You know, even the Apostle Paul submitted himself to the sending authority of the local church. You know, he didn't just pull out his like apostleship business card and say, you know, I, I support what you guys are doing, but you know, I'm I'm an apostle, I'm a pretty big deal. I, I can just do whatever I want. No, that's not how he operated. He always worked in tandem and put himself under the guidance of local uh, congregations. See, in Acts, the local church was the instrument that sent qualified ministers to new places to advance the gospel. And I want to unpack this sending idea a bit more because I don't think it's a topic that we tend to think a lot about. What is sending? Well, fundamentally, I think that sending is local churches participating in the going of others. Now, if you take the Great Commission and Jesus' command to go and make disciples, if you take that in a really rigid way, you could end up thinking that every single Christian must leave where they are and go somewhere different to obey the Great Commission. But I think Acts helps us, helps us to understand that going plays out in a different way practically. See, some are literally called to go. I think that the Lord has called me to be one of those people who goes in a literal sense. But most believers in Acts stayed in one place. That's why there was a church at Jerusalem, and at Antioch, and at Ephesus. See, all believers, even those who stay in the same location, obey Jesus' commission to go when they participate in sending others out to advance 
the gospel. And by the way, based on 1 Timothy 2 and 3 and Titus 1, I believe that the church is to send out pastors in particular. It's not to downplay that many others might go out from a local church to do all sorts of great things for God's kingdom. I don't deny any of that. But it's pastors especially. Men committed to shepherding new believers in new venues who are the most needed gospel workers. But let's get specific about what sending out such men looks like. Because sending is a lot more than just saying goodbye and wishing the best for those who go out. Sending starts when local churches own their responsibility to raise up qualified ministers of the gospel. I want to say that again. Sending starts when local churches own their responsibility to raise up qualified ministers of the gospel. You know, my observation is that many churches think it's the seminary's job to prepare Christian ministers to go out into the world. But, you know, that's not what we really see in the book of Acts. It was the church who identified and sent out men to build up other churches. And by the way, as helpful as seminaries are, it's naive to think that a man is ready for ministry just because he went to seminary. I mean, lots of good pastors have come out of seminaries. So have many heretics. If a local church is serious about sending, it must take ownership of its unique responsibility to raise up and dispatch ministers of the gospel. No, I kind of think of it like parenting. Who's responsible to raise my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Who's responsible for that? Well, it's me, because I'm the father. And Ephesians 6.4 specifically gives that charge to fathers. Now, that doesn't mean that others aren't involved in that process. Certainly, my wife has a huge role. There's other people in my children's lives that are going to help develop them. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the buck stops right here. I'm the dad. It's ultimately and primarily and fundamentally my responsibility to raise my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I think that's similar with this idea of sending ministers of the gospel. There may be a lot of entities involved in that. I think a seminary is crucial for anyone who's going to teach and preach the word regularly. A missions agency may have a role. There may be key role models in a pastor's life that have a role in sending them out. But at the end of the day, it's the church's responsibility. It's ultimately and fundamentally their job. See, whose job is it to spread the gospel to the end of the earth? That's Grace Evangelical Free Church's job. And yes, every other local congregation out there, but let's focus on grace. Grace, it's your job to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And sending starts when a local church raises its hand and says, yes, we're responsible. It's our job, not someone else's job. It's our job to send out ministers of the gospel to advance the Lord's agenda. That's where sending starts. Well, let's get down into the particulars because... You might say, well, Ben, I like the sounds of this sending stuff, but I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. What role do I play in all of this? Well, I think there's room for every single believer to play a significant role when it comes to sending. Now, for example, you can have a massive impact 
by helping an aspiring pastor to clarify his call. You know, if a man, a man may have a subjective sense that he's called to ministry, but, but that call needs to be tested and confirmed by a local church. So part of sending is being willing for a young buck like myself or Prasanna or Derek to practice shouldering responsibility in the church, even though we won't be all that great at it right away. You know, for me personally, having opportunities to be preaching here at Grace has been so incredibly helpful. You know how rare that is in this town? Do you realize that most men who go into ministry are given like almost no opportunities to practice pretty much the most important part of their job, which is preaching the word? I think Grace has been a model church in this regard, and I want to commend you for your willingness to allow me to develop those gifts that I believe the Lord has given me. You also help an aspiring minister clarify his call when you give thoughtful feedback. So strive to give meaningful feedback to aspiring pastors. You know, if things went well, let them know. And nothing against saying, nice job. But it's so much more helpful when you give specifics about what went well. That can be so affirming. And on the other end of the spectrum, if things didn't go well, let him know that too. That's part of the process of developing those gifts. And I'll tell you from my experience personally, by far the most helpful feedback I get is the negative feedback. Uh, part of that's just because it's rare, because, not because I don't need it, but just because I think everyone wants to be nice, right? But that's so helpful. When I get negative feedback, it's like a gold mine. It's like, oh, really? You thought I looked like a geek up there? Can, can, you, can you explain a little more? I don't want to look like a geek. Help me not do that. Or, oh, wow, that person left because they were so offended by what I said. What did I say? How was that offensive? How could I have said that differently? See, that's my mindset. I want to grow in my gifts as a minister, and that requires honest feedback. I would say especially negative feedback so that we can grow. See, you can play a huge role in sending out others simply by providing them opportunities to hone their gifts and by giving helpful feedback. It's not a stretch to say that when you do that, you're actually taking part of the gospel advancing to the ends of the earth. You also take part of sending when you give generously in financial and material ways. Now, there's no secret about this, that, that ministers don't tend to be wealthy. And while a man's zeal for the kingdom may drive him to persevere through financial hardships, that's not a recipe, really, for long-term success. So we should strive to be people who generously contribute to those laboring in ministry. That's biblical, by the way. Just read 1 Corinthians 9. You know, as I've pursued ministry, God has blessed my family through the generosity of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And my home church in Vermont is actually paying for my seminary degree. I couldn't afford that on my own. Even with this move to Utah, Christians have stepped up in unexpected ways to help us pull off a move in these hard economic times. See, when you give generously to this local church, you not only support Pastor Mark and all the bills that this church needs to pay, you also put this church in a position to bless others who want to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. See, your generous giving, it's not insignificant. It really matters. It's part of sending the gospel out from this place. And how about prayer? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 9? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
You know, you'd expect him to say, therefore, go out into the harvest and get busy. But that's not what Jesus says next, is it? He says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, prayer isn't an add-on to the gospel's progress, like the fortune cookie you get with your Chinese food. No, no, prayer is required for the gospel to go forward. The Lord of the harvest will send out laborers when and only when we pray earnestly, asking for him to do so. So Grace Evangelical Free Church, your prayers are necessary. Your prayers for those already sent out, like the missionaries listed on the map in the foyer, those prayers are necessary. Your prayers for those currently preparing to be sent, like Derek, Rosanna, myself, those prayers are necessary too. Your prayers for new people to send out are necessary. Your big picture prayers for the gospel to advance to the ends of the earth, those prayers are all necessary. See, when it comes to our duty to send, there are no unimportant Christians. When we help to clarify the call of others, when we give generously to the work of the ministry, when we pray for the kingdom to advance, God is using us to move his gospel forward. These are things that a church with a culture of sending does. And I'm trying to inspire us to be that kind of church. But let's face it, sending is hard, isn't it? It's often painful to send. It may involve churches splitting. I'm sure many of you have had that experience. Sending often means letting go of key people in your congregation, often well-liked people, and that can leave a void. At times, sending means not seeing people you care about again, or at least not seeing them very often. And it's not only painful, sending requires a lot of sacrifice. It's a sacrifice to help others prepare for ministry, no doubt about it. It requires planning, intentionality, a lot of patience. Sending often requires a church to make financial sacrifices. I remember when my home church years ago, 70 people left to form a new church. It was a church plant. And we took a big financial hit to make that happen. And sending requires a stubborn resistance against the status quo. It requires creativity, visionary leadership. It requires a willingness to try new things. It frequently requires refusing to take the easy path of doing what's comfortable and familiar. So why do it? Why send? <clears throat> well, first, because our church's health is worth it. You know, one of the reasons that churches die is because they become insular. You know, they lose their sense of mission. They begin to function more like a social club and not like an outpost of gospel proclamation. And a church like that ends up revolving around itself. You know, the same people doing the same thing simply because that's the way it's always been done. Just keeping the status quo, never doing anything uncomfortable, never taking risks, just kind of coexisting in a little pious huddle. Brothers and sisters, that insular mindset, which can so easily creep into a congregation, if left unchecked, that mindset will ultimately kill a church. 
But sending protects us. It, it puts us in the game. It keeps us from being flabby and off on the sidelines. Again, I think the parenting analogy is helpful. You know, despite the pain and sacrifice it takes to send your grown children off on their own, that's necessary for their health and for the health of your family, is it not? I mean, isn't the whole point of parenting to prepare your kids for life? Sending is the goal, isn't it? In the same way, sending is healthy for the church. It keeps us on mission. It's one of the ways that we stay healthy and we keep moving the gospel forward. So our church's health is worth the hardship of sending. And souls are worth it too. I mean, do you realize that as we sit here, millions and millions and millions of people are dying in their sins. The world is on fire. Countless sinners tumbling towards hell with no hope of escape because they don't know the gospel. And Grace Evangelical Free Church, what are we going to do about that predicament? Are we going to sit on our hands? Are we going to close our ears to the cries of the lost? No. No, by God's grace, let's not be like that. Let's be a church that cares about the lost. Let's be a church that sends out as many rescuers as possible to snatch people out of the flames, to save sinners from eternal damnation. Souls are worth the sacrifice of sending. But as we conclude, I want to remind you that God isn't asking us to do something that he hasn't already done in spades. Our God is ascending God. See, you and I used to be one of those sinners tumbling hopelessly towards hell. We had no love for God. We had no desire to serve him. We just loved ourselves. And what did God do about our predicament? Did he sit on his hands? Did he just say, oh well, too bad for them? No, that's not what God did. At great cost to himself, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins while we were yet sinners. See, Jesus snatched us out of the flames. He made our deliverance possible by burning under the fire of God's wrath against sin. And so I ask you, if God would so send his son for us, should we not send and be sent for his sake? Is there any sacrifice that we make in sending that a candle to the sacrifice that God made when he sent Jesus Christ for us. See, God that would send his son for our sins in our helpless condition is worth every pain, every sacrifice, every hardship. So Grace Evangelical Free Church, let's aspire to be a congregation whose zeal for sending is worthy of of our great God. 
Let's be a church that attempts big things for him. Let's be a church that spreads Christ's fame to the ends of the earth. Let's be a church where bittersweet goodbyes are common because of our commitment to sending the gospel out from this place. May God give us the grace to send and to be sent for his sake. Let's pray. Father, we know that we are weak vessels. And yet we know that you intend to use us to spread the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel to the ends of the earth. And so, Father, we ask that you would use us. Use Grace Evangelical Free Church right here in Louisville, Kentucky to do big things for your kingdom. Lord, help us to be a church that is doggedly committed to sending out the gospel. Help us to be a church that punches above our weight, that's valuable to your kingdom, that's really making an impact in lost souls coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that makes an impact in new churches springing up in new places to proclaim the gospel. Lord, give us a hunger for these things. We know that we can't do it without you. Lord, bless this word. Use it to change us. Use it to move this church forward. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending him for us while we were still sinners. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.